the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. During episode 27, we ask these questions. Why do we need to go back to the moon? Can meaningful lunar samples that answer key scientific and resource utilization questions be collected robotically? Are pyroclastics the key to understanding lunar evolution? How do we get samples back from the moon? And what plans should we make to preserve and curate lunar samples brought to Earth by the Artemis missions? And what should be the goals of sample curation? James Head of Rhode Island's Brown University was a scientist for the Apollo missions. In March of 2022, he posed, then answered, this question. Why do we need to go back to the moon? So I want to just close by saying that, you know, why do we need to go back to the moon? Don't we have enough information on the moon? <laughs> and the answer, of course, is uh, no, we need to go back. Um, there are many unanswered fundamental questions about the moon. Uh, as I pointed out, these provide real insights into early Earth history. And it's a foundation for understanding the other planets and satellites. Everything we learn about the moon informs us about these other planetary bodies, which are, which are harder to, uh, to explore. Um, it also enhances this kind of exploration. It enhances national pride and prestige. Uh, you know, pride is how we view ourselves. Prestige are how others view us. Any country that's engaged in space exploration, India, uh, ESA, Japan, United States, Russia, uh, you, you know, they're, they're all uh, building on their own national capabilities and they're building pride in how they can accomplish things and prestige uh, you know, in, in their own people, but also prestige and how um, others view them. This really enhances international cooperation. This is critically important. I'm very honored to have been a member of the team of the uh, Moon Mineralogy Mapper on Chandrayaan 1. And it was just an amazing mission and learning and learning from my Indian colleagues and collaborating and cooperating with them was absolutely fantastic. 
It also provides a challenging but relatively easy access. You can get to the moon and get back relatively easy. We can do both human and robotic exploration. Both of these are possible, which helps us to understand how we would approach uh, going to Mars, for example. What's the ratio of human and robotic exploration capabilities? And of course, for any country, it's a driver for technological development. If you can send something to the moon, then you know you can develop various kinds of technologies that will help improve life on, on the earth, life in your own country, uh, and applications to a whole host of different kinds of uh, scientific and technological capabilities, global warming, other types of things like that, energy resources, water resources. It also encourages science and engineering synergism, as I mentioned. If we can get engineers and scientists to work together, we can solve Earth problems as well as planetary problems. And again, for me, this was very true for myself. It was an inspiration for me to work on this. This is what brought me into this kind of uh, career, uh, inspiration for youth and a basis for enhancing diversity. You know, in the 1960s, uh, sadly, I mean, it just it was the way it was. It was largely a male culture. Men were the most uh, active participants. Uh, there were some women, there were some people of color, but they were really underrepresented significantly. So if we were so successful in Apollo, think of what we can do with engaging the other 50% of the population, women, for example, and minorities, and also the rest of the world the talent that exists outside of the United States or your own country. Think about that. Think of what we can do. So it's an inspiration, I think, for everyone. And the future really is international coordination and cooperation. Coordination means we talk and we work together to plan our own missions. Cooperation means actually working together like we did on Chandrayaan-1 and fly instruments on each other's spacecraft and so on. So I think that's the future. And I hope through Apollo, I've been able to show you uh, that that's what we hope to do in the future. And I look forward uh, to helping all of us uh, develop these kinds of careers that are so rewarding as we did in Apollo. Thank you very much. Both the Soviet Union and China have robotically collected samples of the lunar regolith and brought them back to Earth. Mike Siebert of Maxar Technologies had this to say in July of 2020 about how Apollo samples were collected and how using robotic scoops might be of benefit in the Artemis era. We've heard a lot about the Apollo context uh, for sample collection. Um, and the big thing is we've seen the images of the tools and sample containers used on Apollo. We've seen images of the tools being developed for Artemis. The Apollo context that I really have started looking at is that a lot of the uh, collection systems, especially for regolith, required both crew members, but later systems um, could be operated by one crew member. The LRV scoop, which was a bag scoop, was an example of a single crew member capable uh, regolith sampling device. Robotic regolith sampling, on the other hand, has actually uh, been accomplished for quite a while, even actually dating back to prior to Apollo. There was the uh, scoop on the uh, early robotic arms deployed on the surveyor missions. But on Mars, um, we have seen um, robotic scooping of samples and actually sample transfer to instruments. Um, you can use that as a proxy for a uh, sample collection container. Um, it's been done on Viking, uh, Phoenix, Curiosity, but so far the only mobile scooping platform that we have really sent to date uh, to Mars is Curiosity and on the moon uh, for mobile scooping has been the Apollo astronauts. Um, 
So coming up on the moon, there's also going to be future robotic scooping capability with the sampler uh, robotic tech demo payload, which I'm one of the co-eyes on, which will forms the backbone of the concept that I'm going to talk about. So the notional system concept uh, that we have been uh, working on is for robotic sampling of regolith. This would be a rover mounted, allow access to the surface to do bulk regolith sampling and then uh, depositing the regolith into sample containers that would then be able to self-seal. Um, so this would be with the crew potentially in the loop to pick a selection site or a crew out of the loop. It's a robot arm that we envision being able to be mounted to the LTV when that is deployed, or a common system could also be used across uh, multiple rovers, whether crewed or uncrewed. So the big benefits of doing robotic regolith sampling, and I bet you're asking why we're talking about robotics uh, when we're focusing on crew science. Um, one of the big ones is consistent sample collection and caching. We can, with the robotic trajectory planning, we can have the scoop pass through a trajectory um, along the surface to collect a skim sample, a um, just more of a rough scoop sample, or be able to even excavate some of the surface to uh, acquire subsurface, uh, shallow subsurface samples. Also, there is potential ability to allow for uh, sieving of samples prior to deposit in these sample containers or during deposit in sample containers. The big one, though, is that this would free up a lot of uh, crew time on the surface uh, when the rover uh, hits a station of interest. You'd be able to uh, have the sampling system either autonomously collect a sample or be teleoperated from a location that isn't with the crew that is currently on EVA. Big benefit is reducing the collateral dust deposition onto these spacesuits. We can adapt the system, as I mentioned before, onto multiple rovers. If you adapt it onto a pressurized rover, this could eliminate the need for an EVA to do a regular sample collection. So the crew could effectively have this sample collected while they're uh, drinking their morning coffee on a long traverse. And with the expected remote operation of LTV and especially the LSSMS class rovers, the rovers could be repositioned slightly to allow for these targeted sample collection to occur when the crew is not present, um, either if the crew is off the rover doing EVA tasks in the immediate vicinity, or if the crew is not present on the surface in any capacity. So going to the punchline, doing robotic sample on crew rovers allows you to have samples over a larger area collected during a much shorter time. Um, the crew rovers move fast and cover a lot of distance. Had a fourth drive then occur on Apollo, any of the Apollo missions with the LRV, their total uh, distance driven would exceed that of the Opportunity rover on Mars, which is the current uh, reigning rover champion. And this also allows these samples to be collected with less crew time required. So there's a benefit to combining robotics and crew operations. Pyroclastics are volcanic rocks and glasses. The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been circling the Moon since 2009. NOAA Petro has been using the data from LRO to spy out likely places to find pyroclastic glasses. In November of 2021, he shared his wealth of experience. What are the value of going to pyroclastic deposits? And so we pose four potential landing sites, some on the near side, some on the far side, and some on the western limb that would provide insight into uh, the deep interior of the moon, as well as the possibility of, of uh, volatiles uh, derived from the lunar interior. Of course, we know that there's a, a, a range of pyroclastics across the surface of the moon. Some were sampled at all the Apollo landing sites, most famously, of course, Apollo 17. But if we can go to some of these more unique features and constrain mantle compositional variation in situ, that would, of course, be a very valuable thing. You know, the ultimate goal has to be getting some of these fragments 
back into our labs on the Earth. You know, we know that sampling of volcanic glasses is important. Artemis SDT calls that out multiple places. Uh, we know from orbit that, the, that there are a number of these really interesting features across the moon. You know, we want to understand where did these glasses come from, how much volatiles might be found inside of the glasses, and what is the relative fraction of glasses versus quenched materials in these deposits. We mul visit multiple uh, of these features. We get to see, again, varieties in formation, mode of emplacement, as well as compositional differences. So first, let's talk about one of my favorite pyroclastic deposits, the Oriental, the so-called KISS. It's a ring feature about 75 kilometers in radius from a central vent. Has a very distinct compositional source, um, this intermediate position between the Procolarium Creek terrain and the Felspathic Highlands terrain. It's unlike any other pyroclastic we see on the surface of the moon. At right is a, quote, olivine feature uh, map from Kaguya, but of course it also highlights the spectral signature of glass. And so we can identify exactly where to go. And there's a number of potentially really excellent landing sites within this, this feature that, uh, that we could target. Sinus HGM is a, is a really unique pyroclastic feature because this is a iron or chrome spinel uh, pyroclastic deposit. We see no other similar compositions elsewhere on the moon. And, and so targeting this would obviously reveal a very interesting part of the lunar mantle expressed at the lunar surface. I call into as a particular target, the so-called beacon crater. We have a NAC DTM of it. It would be a, a compelling target for sure. This is the area that of my introduction to lunar science back in 2000, Oppenheimer. It's a crater on the far side of the moon in the South Balakan Basin. It's a floor-fractured crater with several localized pyroclastic deposits. Um, not only would we be able to sample mantle material from underneath SPA, but of course the possibility of, of trapped volatiles, as well as obviously addressing SPA science would be compelling, uh, compelling here. And lastly, Lavoisier on the northwestern hemisphere of the moon near Oceanus Procellarum. Again, another unique feature and different mantle source from the other uh, visited pyroclasts. So with these, we obviously want to get the material when to scoop into the regolith or drill, ingest the material, look at it with spectrometers at the surface, and get bulk composition of the glass through any number of mechanisms to complement the remote sensing data. <laughs> Enhancing capability, we wanna go and drill into this to look at potentially variations as a function of eruption. So whether or not there's lateral variations, if we have a rover or vertical variations in how the material erupted on the surface. But again, we're all aiming towards, towards getting these materials back as a real enhancing capability. When Neil Armstrong busied himself on the Sea of Tranquility, his instructions from geologists was to collect as wide a variety of rocks as he could find. Before sealing the collection box, he thought it a bit empty. So, he scooped up some of the loose regolith and placed it into the box. It turns out that this sample of moon dust was one of the most valuable things brought home from the moon by Apollo 11. Regolith is a mixture of broken rocks and glassy fragments, the result of billions of years of meteorite bombardment. In July of 2020, Clive Neal of Notre Dame University was pondering the questions and priorities for sampling. In particular, what mix of rock versus regolith should the Artemis astronauts collect? Uh, what are the science questions and priorities for sampling? Um, are the highlands materials at the south pole of the moon different from those in the Apollo collection? Uh, do we actually see more magnesium for, for Rowan and orthosites? Yeah. 
Um, and again, if we, assuming impact samples are present, there's a there's an issue here of how do we then assign them to impact craters. So there's going to be a, uh, um, a quite a forensic analysis in order to do that. And will it ever be able? Will we ever be able to do that uh, with with complete confidence? Um, is there a compositional dichotomy between near side and far side basaltic materials? Um, and then what are the origins? Um, uh, of the polar ice deposits and again cryogenic sample return and I put question mark there because we'll get onto that in a little bit. And what are the exploration priorities for sampling? Um, again polar ice deposits come front and center here. What are the impurities and how are they distributed? Uh, geotechnical properties of the lunar regolith to inform Artemis base camp plans. So I, I'm hoping that we have kilograms of regolith uh, samples being returned which would also be useful for science. So we continue with the science questions again. What is the right mix of rock versus regolith versus rake or sieve rock materials versus core samples versus other? Um, tough question. Um, and I don't know. It depends upon the science and we can learn from Apollo. Uh, I would say that a bulk regolith contingency sample is, is the first one to, uh, to collect. Uh, so that we have that for both science and exploration. Uh, representative sampling of hand specimen size rocks and larger samples. And, and we can see examples of that with Big Muley from, uh, from Apollo 16. Um, and then the core samples and, and with the ANXA project ongoing, we know how important those are. And they may take on an added importance for actually testing if, uh, if, if these uh, hydrogen suppression zones exist around these deep PSRs that we may be able to uh, to actually get to those volatile deposits without actually going into these uh, rather um, uh, in interesting environmental environments at 40 Kelvin. Uh, rake samples, of course, um, yes, they're going to be important for gathering and, and high-grading rocklets. Um, and there's going to be a difference from Apollo, again, because of the polar ice sampling. How do we do that and how do we get those samples back that can be used in the uh, um, in terrestrial labs? But I think maybe something that needs to be looked at a bit more is what is the balance between spending the money to get the samples back versus in situ analysis? So again, continuing on, what new field analytical methods should be employed to assist sampling by astronauts? And uh, having listened to Jack Schmidt for a few years now, I put better gloves in there because uh, dexterity would be important. I think one of the important things to remember is that you can you can Christmas tree your astronaut into inactivity because they've just got too much going on. And that balance uh, in the field of uh, enabling technology uh, versus uh, um, too much technology needs to be looked at in, in more detail. And I think and it has been looked at by the desert rats. And I'm sure Dean Epler will, will chime in. Uh, the new sample type science goals will dictate sampling strategy and curation requirements. Uh, there are new opportunities here uh, that we should, uh, we should grab. And I think the big question, who funds the research on the samples returned by Artemis? The Apollo astronauts picked up and scooped up rocks and loose regolith, put them into plastic bags, dumped them into metal boxes, sealed them airtight, hauled them up into the lunar modules and brought them back to Earth. The boxes were not opened until they were in a pure nitrogen atmosphere in the Lunar Receiving Laboratory in Houston. 
Things will be different for the Artemis samples because they will likely contain volatiles that will need to be kept at cryogenic temperatures. In February of 2021, the Johnson Space Center's Michael Evans offered these thoughts on how to get these samples back to Earth. Do you see the job of astronauts to send samples up to the gateway for analysis, or is there a mix of lab analysis in situ and from the gateway or coming back to here on Earth? Yeah, I'm going to deal with both of those questions. Cindy made a comment also about processing on gateway. I don't believe uh, the astronauts will be processing samples once they're bagged. The, con the concept that we had on Gateway, though, was we, we're, we're in a conundrum. Um, the only way to get anything back to Earth on Orion is inside in the pressurized volume. Orion has no external storage. So if you bring anything up to Gateway on the surface, you have to bring it inside where the crew is, and then you have to transfer it to inside storage on Orion. Maybe somebody down the road will come up with a trunk on an outside of a vehicle, perhaps Dragon. But to bring that sample from the surface inside, the concept we were using working with the curation staff is to double bag. Basically, once the sample has been captured on the surface and sealed, you then bring it up to gateway. And while it's in the glove box, before you bring it into the pressurized environment, you double bag it, you seal it again in case there was damage to it. That, uh, that way you don't contaminate your crew on gateway and you don't contaminate the sample. So that was the concept of that. We're not talking at all about having the field geologists do mass spec or microscope or analysis of the samples, at least not in the near term. I mean, maybe somewhere down the road, but not now. The Apollo samples have been curated at the Johnson Space Center for half a century. Scientists can request samples for study, either destructively or on loan to be returned. The Lunar Receiving Laboratory is open to the public where you can see scientists at work. Julie Mitchell will be in charge of the curation of the Artemis samples. In July of 2020, she described what will happen to these new samples. I'm hoping this presentation will give everyone a nice overview of some of the work we're doing in terms of optimizing sample return for Artemis. I also want to uh, just introduce this topic um, as something that um, I hope everyone will think about. So the Artemis mandate, I think most folks are familiar with this, but I'm just going to give a very quick overview of the Artemis program that the United States will lead the return of humans to the moon for long-term exploration and utilization, followed by human missions to Mars and other destinations. And the real key point of, of the mandate was the part that said the, that the plan is to return American astronauts to the moon within the next five years. <clears throat> and because this was 2019, uh, that gives us a target of 2024 for the first uh, landing on the moon in the Artemis program. So Artemis is broken into two phases, and so I'm not going to go through all the details of each phase here, but I do want to give folks a sense of the architecture. So uh, the first Artemis missions will not be landed missions. Artemis 1 and 2 will be missions to the moon and orbiting the moon and preparing us for the first uh, human landing, which will be Artemis 3, and that is the one that is targeted to take place in 2024. So so Artemis Phase 2 is the Artemis 4 mission and beyond, so Artemis 4, 5, 6, and 7. This is where we'll have a lot more of the surface operations capability and infrastructure um, that we plan to leverage for surface studies and um, enhanced sample characterization and hopefully sample return on the surface. So the mission constraints, um, I know a lot of folks have questions about this, so I want to go ahead and, and put this out there at the very beginning. Uh, we do have a sample return mass, a maximum of 
100 kilograms of down mass. Um, this includes all of the return samples, so not just the geologic samples, but any biologic samples that are collected, in addition to sample containers, which we estimate will be about 20% of the down mass. And the reason this is the constraint is because this is the human landing system requirement. Um, so the lunar lander is designed to meet this uh, return mass requirement. Uh, we also have a return volume constraint, uh, which is 0.16 cubic meters of volume. This is based on Apollo, and it is constrained. This is the value that HLS and Orion have been designed to and are working to. And I'm not going to go through the details, but I do want to point out that the science objectives for Artemis, there are several that are specifically relevant to sample return. Um, including understanding planetary processes such as differentiation and volcanism on the lunar surface, understanding volatile cycles, understanding the impact history of the Earth-Moon system, and understanding the solar activity and how that has changed throughout time. And so uh, these are all questions that uh, returned samples will help us to answer. And we'll implement these science objectives in several ways. Um, so going kind of from bigger picture to smaller picture, the first thing we want to do is define the science questions that fall within each of these, these objectives. Now, once we constrain those science questions, then we can say, okay, what samples do we need to collect that will address those science questions? And that will help us to feed into the surface operations plans um, and the sample collection tools and containers that will be designed, uh, that are being designed to collect the samples and bring them home. Now, following up on that, what laboratory measurements, measurements will need to be made on those samples that we're going to collect? And then what are the analytical constraints of that instrumentation? And all of that drives us to how do we limit contamination? How do we select materials and design the hardware, um, not just in flight, but also in the curation labs to facilitate all of the measurements and all of the analyses that you all will want to do on the samples when they come back? So the goals of Artemis curation are, are threefold. Um, I kind of broadly categorize them as uh, these three. So first of all, we want to preserve the Artemis samples in flight. So that's from collection on the lunar surface to their return to Earth. So a lot of people may have the, the uh, idea that curation only happens on the ground and in a clean lab, but curation actually begins at the beginning of the mission. And so we really want to make sure that sample preservation is a focus for Artemis and that we implement uh, hardware and operation strategies that maximize sample preservation throughout the mission in flight. We also uh, want to provide initial sample characterization and a sample catalog to enable your scientific studies of the samples. And so for those of you who have studied Apollo samples or meteorites or other astromaterials, um, this is a process that you're very familiar with in terms of um, sample requests and using the catalogs that we've established in the curation office. Finally, we want to curate the samples for the long term, um, and this is something that we are experiencing now through the Apollo Next Generation Sample Analysis Program, or ANCSA program, um, that by curating the samples in a, in a very pristine, uh, clean way, uh, we are actually facilitating future investigations using instrumentation and analytical techniques that don't exist today. So in order to implement this sample preservation, uh, we have some broad categories here in terms of uh, preventing contamination of the samples. And so uh, we want to limit reactions, chemical reactions between the samples uh, with oxygen and humidity in the atmosphere. This is something we do on the ground by keeping the samples in glove boxes that are purged with dry nitrogen gas. We want to prevent uh, particulate contamination, microbial cross-contamination, which is planetary protection. Uh, we want to prevent any kind of organic contamination. 
So we also want to um, store and preserve the volatile samples, and so this is something we are actively working on at JSC. We are constraining uh, the storage temperature requirements and materials compatibility requirements um, in the lab with simulated uh, lunar volatile rich materials. And we are also soliciting input from the community in terms of uh, cold technologies that we can fly to keep the samples cold in flight. So our long-term sample storage, we obviously want to uh, facilitate long-term analyses of the samples. Our storage requirements are something that we are developing and we are preparing for both ambient temperature and cold and cryogenic sample storage. Um, and a lot of folks are wondering where the samples will be stored. Uh, we are working on plans for an Artemis curation facility. Uh, we could use existing or new facilities, uh, but we are... Julie Mitchell, Artemis Sample Curation Lead. In April of 2021, Julie had these additional comments. Uh, I'm Julie Mitchell. I'm the Artemis Curation Lead, and I'm going to give you a hopefully pretty quick update on uh, what's going on for Artemis Curation, starting with a little bit of background info. So uh, the goals of Artemis Curation uh, very broadly are listed here. The first goal is to preserve the Artemis samples. Uh, we definitely want to make sure that, that the samples are not altered in any way, or at least any alteration is minimized after collection and when we're curating them in the labs here on Earth. We also want to provide initial sample characterization and catalog development, which we call preliminary examination, to help enable uh, scientific studies of the samples that we're bringing back. And then we also want to enable uh, those scientific investigations using both current and future technologies via long-term sample storage and distribution. This is something that uh, has been done very well for the Apollo samples and anyone who's aware of the Apollo Next Generation Sample Analysis Program or ANCSA program will see the value of well-curated samples. The first is the finding that Artemis should collect a diverse set of sample types. Um, and the reason this is important for curation is that we need to make sure we are capable of and prepared for preserving a, those diverse types of samples. But we also want to make sure that sample collection and situ measurement are complementary, and so we should do both of those. And the reason I bring this one up is that in situ measurement is very important, especially when we start talking about volatiles. We want to make sure we have some idea of the types of volatiles we'll be collecting, because depending on what volatiles are there that has some pretty big impacts on how we're going to collect the samples and curate them once they come back. The specifics of how much sample we'll be able to bring back really depends on the final HLS uh, results. Um, and so I'm, I'm quoting the requirements here, but I want folks to be aware that the down mass for samples isn't just for geology samples. It also includes biology samples, which have been mentioned previously, human health samples, the containers that the samples will be in. And so it will be very important for us to understand what the down mass is so we can refine our, our efforts and plans for how we're going to curate the samples. We are prepared in the curation office at JSC to curate these samples, whatever form they may be in, whether they're small class, large class, core samples, uh, and so on. Uh, contamination is a big deal as well. Uh, you've heard a little bit about contamination uh, previously, and this is something that, of course, is very relevant to curation. Um, obviously, in flight, we want to mitigate contamination, but once the samples get back, we want to make sure that we keep the samples as pristine as possible. And so I have listed here the different types of contamination 
contamination. Uh, those three uh, brightly bright blue boxes at the bottom there, um, those are the volatile specific types of contamination that we are really doing a lot of technology development on. So now I'm going to focus on volatile samples quite a bit. Um, a lot of challenges there, of course, in terms of hermetically sealed samples and so on. Cold stowage is a top priority effort for Artemis. It's being worked by all of the different NASA mission directorates. So another couple of things from the Artemis SDT report. Of course, we want to have a fair and open and impartial sample request and allocation system. Talking about sample characterization and cataloging, this is what I mentioned before as a preliminary examination. So when I say PE, I'm talking about uh, that sample characterization cataloging. And so for rock and particle samples, this, this typically follows a process of documenting the sample by taking photographs, quantifying the amount of sample by weighing it, classifying the sample by roughly looking at rock type and things like that, and then providing a sample identification number or subsample number to, to that uh, material. For volatile sample, we're going to have to have a different paradigm, um, and we want to make sure that we have a very well-established and robust process for doing preliminary examination on the volatile samples when they come back. And long-term sample storage, of course, this is incredibly important. As I mentioned before, the success of the ANGSA program uh, really shows how well uh, and how important long-term uh, sample storage is. And so we want to make sure we do this for Artemis as well. And so we're preparing for both ambient temperature and cold and cryogenic sample storage and processing. At JSC right now, we are still working on where exactly the samples will be stored, but we're looking at multiple different options, including new versus uh, current facilities. Um, and once we make that decision, of course, the community, all of you, uh, will be notified of that. Thank you. If you want to touch the moon, you don't actually have to go there. There are several lunar touchstones that the public can, yes, touch. One is at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. A second is at the Saturn V building at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. I have heard of a third in Mexico City, but cannot personally confirm this as, unlike the first two, I have not seen and touched it. There is a fine, large rock on public display at the Tidman Villa Deep Space Tracking Centre in the Australian Capital Territory. Well worth a look. And uh, there's dozens of tiny fragments housed in museums around the world, although many of these are not now on public display.